Well, as we approach God's Word this morning to look for a third time at biblical Christian discipleship, it's important for you to know that to have a right understanding of discipleship should be an encouragement to you, not a discouragement. I have strong suspicion, in fact, I have deep belief that if you are in Christ, you desire to be a disciple of someone else who is a disciple of Christ. You long to overcome the difficulties in your life. You long to overcome sin. You long to have victory such that you could actually be a rock and a refuge for others in your life that you know struggle with discouragement and hopelessness and defeat in sin. If you're in Christ, you want those things. And yet you've had difficulty gaining traction in the matter of spiritual maturity. Let it be embraced in your heart and in mine that to have a right understanding of discipleship will be encouraging to you if you're in Christ. But certainly there are some irreducible responsibilities of the person who would be faithful to Christ and would be involved in discipleship. But you may be thinking, I'm already too busy. I just don't have time to add another relationship to my life. If that's what you're thinking, you may simply need to make some adjustments in your life to open the door unto a joy-filled life of obedience to the Lord and follow his plan for your spiritual growth, resulting in much spiritual gain rather than some other plan that will have diminished results at best. Now, you can do the thinking about what the priorities in your life are, but it's not unusual for a person to be exposed to biblical Christianity and begin to realize that he's pouring himself into activities that are not necessarily helpful to honor Christ, to edify the saints, nor to evangelize the lost, but he's justified them because he enjoys them. So you think through the sort of resume that you might present to someone who may be asking, tell me about your spiritual life. You might do an inventory of your own life. I recommend that you do. And ask the question, do all of these things that I'm devoted to in my life meet the spiritual criteria for being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or are they just things that I like? How are they, how are they being used to honor Christ, to equip the saints, to win the lost? But be encouraged. You can be effectively involved in biblical Christ-honoring discipleship, and you can begin that journey today. You can. If you're in Christ, you can. This really is boiled down to one issue. No one can keep you from this, and nothing should deter you from it. The key to being effectively, faithfully involved in discipleship is simply to be faithful to Christ and his word. If you're in Christ, you can do that. There are methods, there are ministries in our church, and I mentioned them earlier, by which we intend to nurture discipleship. But they in and of themselves are not the end-all, be-all of discipleship. You know that. Iron Man is not the end-all, be-all of discipleship, nor is WOW, or even 116 or 412. Those ministries are intended to give you a picture and a platform for discipleship. We believe they are crucial. We believe they are very, very important for the development of relationships so that discipleship would springboard from them. 
But the ultimate issue is, are you following Christ and are you leading others to follow Christ? And I've found often that the person who says, well, you know, those things are not my thing, that they're not involved in discipleship. But I've seen a lot of people recognize the value of following the leadership in understanding what discipleship looks like and the methods by which we've intended to nurture it get into a groove and get to the place where discipleship actually becomes a practice of their lives and so they're pouring into someone else or a few someone else's and God begins to, to do work in that other person's life. Of course, as you know, this begins with being discipled. This doesn't begin with you know, a person coming to know Christ and saying, you know what, I'm going to start discipling someone. That, that can't help. That, that would be dangerous. But the person who comes to know Christ should be wanting to ask a lot of questions, wanting to understand biblical Christianity, wanting to really grow spiritually such that he, he not only is able to reproduce himself, but he is worthy of being reproduced. It takes time. It takes maturity. Well, by way of review, I want to just mention uh, where we've been. We talked about the mandate. This was point number one way back in our first message, the mandate. The mandate from Christ, the mandate from the apostles. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he said, go and make disciples. And of course, that discipleship process really should start in your local church. In the broader sense of the term disciple, Jesus taught many, but he discipled men. He discipled 12 men. But in a more concentrated way, he discipled three men, James, Peter, and John. And then in an even more concentrated way, he discipled John. So he poured himself into men. He gave his life. He spent his life on others what he calls you and me to do. Jesus mandated this. Paul also mandated this. Titus 2, 2 Timothy 2. Paul exemplified this for us in his ministry to Timothy, his ministry to Titus, his ministry to Epaphroditus and others. Who discipled Paul? I think we can reasonably speculate that Barnabas discipled Paul. He was the one who created the handshake between James and Cephas and Paul. He was the one who persuaded them to believe that Paul was the real thing, and he created the right hand of fellowship between those men. So certainly Barnabas had a substantial influence on Paul's life. So we looked at the mandate, then we looked at the makeup. Point two was the makeup. Let's go through these quickly. We said first that the makeup of a disciple is that he is a lover of Jesus who reproduces others who love Jesus. He loves Jesus, and he reproduces others who love Jesus. Second, we said that he is a lover of Christians. He loves the brethren. We're known by our love for one another, are we not? In fact, in 1 John 3... John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is one of the basic criteria by which we know that a person is actually a Christian. It is ludicrous that in our spiritual culture these days that nearly everyone who claims to be a Christian is believed to be a Christian. Don't believe that because someone says he's a Christian that he is. He has a hunger for righteousness and he has a love for the brethren. Well, third, we said that he is an inquisitor. He asks questions. The person who is a true disciple does not come to the table saying, let me tell you everything I know. The person who's bypassed this process and he's gotten into a rhythm over the years of wanting so much to be heard and wanting so much to influence others, but he never had a chapter in his life where he just drank and listened and absorbed and imitated other godly people. He's fooling himself into thinking that he's an actual disciple. He asks questions. We looked at Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, as an example of one who asks questions. Fourth, we said that he is a nurturer of discipleship to his family. He nurtures a love for discipleship in his family. Jesus declared, who is my mother and who are my brothers, when he was told that his biological family were waiting to speak with him. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. His devotion to the body with a proper devotion to his family teaches the disciple. He teaches his family to place a high value on God's family. He nurtures in his family not only a love for family, but preeminently a love for the body of Christ with whom we will spend eternity. As I mentioned when we went through this, it, it should not be a surprise to a man that his children begin to, one at a time, abandon the things that he had hoped they would embrace as they get to be 16, 18, 20 years old, when he himself has done little or nothing to nurture a love for discipleship. He's created an idolatrous view of the family such that the family is of such preeminence that there is no willingness to receive discipleship for others, much less to disciple others themselves. It's a great privilege for me. In fact, my boys aren't quite old enough for me to take them to all the things that I want to. As I was preparing uh, to come here Saturday morning to oversee Debbie Lalo's brother's funeral, Two of my boys separately said, can I come with you? And uh, I was going to be here so early, it would have been a long day, and I didn't want to uh, subject them to being here for four or five hours. But it's my privilege to bring them to events like that where there's the joy and the opportunity to express the goodness of Christ, especially in a context where there will, there will be unbelievers. I, I wish I could take them on hospital visits with me. They aren't old enough yet. I'll never forget taking Dawson with me to visit Bob Biggers for the last time. Bob was dying. And um, Dawson got a little distracted at one point, and I 
called his attention back to the, the beauty and the joy of seeing a man in his last days honor Christ with his life. And Bob was so concerned about Dawson. He just wanted to know what was going on in his life. Opportunities like that are substantial. and we, we mustn't let them pass by. It was huge for my, I think, nine-year-old boy at the time to see this man who was in the final moments of his life to declare the goodness and the kindness of Christ and to be interested in Dawson's life. Well, our third point was the model. So we looked at the mandate from Christ and the apostles. We looked at the makeup of a disciple. Then we looked at the model. Jesus in Matthew 10, 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. There is a model. There is an ultimate model in discipleship. And everyone who disciples someone should follow that model. There should be a willingness of the person being discipled to emulate the life of the person who is discipling him as that person emulates the life of Christ. That's the whole idea, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ by following someone or a number of someones who are themselves emulating and being conformed to the person of Christ. Jesus, in his love for his disciples, modeled discipleship in teaching and leading them and in living life with them. Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You don't do this in a vacuum. You need someone to encourage you to do that. And there are a number of people who need you to establish that example so that they could follow you into that practice of denying yourself and following Christ, taking up the cross, a willingness to die. For whoever would save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Spending our lives with no expectation but to lose them. Christ is the model discipler and his model is one of reproduction by imitation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.14 says... I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. What Paul writes to the Corinthians is not to bring shame upon them, but to warn them, to call them to the same lifestyle that Paul led, one of exercising spiritual leadership in the lives of others, which of course requires first to subject oneself to the spiritual leadership of others. 
1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. In Philippians 3, verse 15, Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The person who thinks that his role in Christianity is to kind of touch base with the church, church at least occasionally on Sunday morning, and then to kind of go out and do his own thing has cheated himself out of the privilege of spiritual growth that comes from imitating those who are actually mature. And it's not unusual for that man to go into spiritual meltdown, at least on occasion. And he wonders why it happens, because he doesn't have the parameters of godly people in his life to lift him up, to encourage him, to pray with him, to memorize scripture with him, to go through good books with him, to disciple him. He has not humbled himself. Paul here in Philippians 3 goes on to say, after saying, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, in verse 18, to say, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. See that? The, the person who will not subject himself to the leadership of other godly people will be influenced by godless people. In particular, false converts who promote false theology. They will be inclined to be influenced even by false teachers. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. See, that's what we want to be known for. We want to be known throughout the region, not just to be known for, but we want it to be true of us that our interaction together, our discipleship relationships leads to such holiness and godliness that we are influencing others outside the church. Hebrews 6, 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then this powerful expression in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, our fourth point then was the methods. This was a brief point. The methods you need to know, I need to know, we need to remember that how to disciple begins with how to be discipled. Methods uh, have much latitude. We have a lot of latitude for how to be involved in discipleship. Jesus loved and lived with the brethren. That's a fundamental, irreducible reality. I would suggest, by way of a method, that you subject yourself to someone's leadership for, for six months. Go to someone and say, will you pour into me for six months? 
Jesus poured into the disciples for three years, and at the close of that three years, they still had lots of problems. They still exhibited substantial immaturity. But the person who has never been willing to deliberately, strategically, directly say, please teach me by one person. Please give me the privilege to imitate you that I would walk with Christ more faithfully. But he wouldn't even do that for six months. He's refusing the reality that the disciples did that for three years with Christ. Three years. The one who best follows Jesus is the one who best leads people to Jesus. And in an effort to do that, he must have been led by someone who is leading him to Jesus on a regular and faithful basis. So we didn't talk a lot about methods because the Bible doesn't talk a lot about methods. But the primary element of any right method is to be a person who himself has subjected himself to others of greater maturity. On that note, in his excellent, excellent book, Finally Free, Heath Lambert says about accountability. Now, once you understand, Finally Free is about discipling others unto victory over sexual sin. But Heath Lambert gives a tremendous theology of discipleship and of sanctification in this little book. In his section called Effective Accountability Involves Someone with Maturity, he says, another defective approach of the meeting described earlier, despite their sincere intentions of men who gather for accountability, these young men are all at the same level of maturity and entangled in the same sin. No one in the group has the spiritual stability to counterbalance their communal confusion None of these guys have the proven wisdom to correct their collective waywardness. No one who has experienced lasting victory is there to guide the group out of long-standing defeat. You must have someone providing spiritual leadership in your accountability group who is more advanced in holiness than others. We see in Galatians 6, 1-2 that those caught in sins are restored by those who live by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit doesn't imply perfect no Christian will meet that ultimate standard until they see Jesus face to face. This passage does indicate, however, that you need someone more advanced than yourself in the area of your struggle. Seeking accountability from those who are in the same place in their struggle as you are may make you feel comfortable, but it is unlikely to lead to actual change. You must be accountable to someone who has a track record of victory and sexual purity this kind of person is best equipped to point you toward freedom in your own life. Years ago, a buddy of mine and I decided we were going to go through the Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Faith by Donald Whitney. It's really a, a must-read classic for all Christians. But he and I were basically at the same spiritual maturity level. And our pastor said to us, you guys are not going to help each other because you have the same weaknesses and you don't really help each other as it is. It was helpful for me to read through the book. I took a lot of notes. I've gone through it some even in preparation for this message. It's, it's a tremendous, 
help to understand what the primary responsibilities of the Christian faith are. But I was going through it with the wrong guy. We had a lot of fun, but we didn't help each other. If someone wants to follow you, your goal should be to make that person winsome and valuable as a discipler. How will you do that if you yourself have not sat directly under the discipleship of another more mature, godly saint? Oh, and don't wait. Don't wait. You don't know. You don't know when the Lord's going to take that man or that woman from our church somewhere else, and you will have lost an opportunity. Don't wait. Well, the material then, this was even a shorter point. I gave you a list of recommended tools, books, other resources to be helpful to you. But the material really should involve two categories of issues. One, spiritual truth, right? Reading, drinking from the right books, the right sermons, the the right confessions, catechisms. But in addition to that, the vehicle could easily be a decision to spend time together in some normal setting. And we talked about the possibility of a you know, two men working on a car together or uh, two men serving as deacons in someone else's house. Uh, but in the context of that interaction, looking to those spiritual truths and asking, how do these deep, rich, God-glorifying truths manifest themselves in our hearts, in our conduct, in our speech right now? Why are we doing this? Why are we changing out the uh, ceiling fan for some widow? Why are we doing what we're doing? How is it reflective of our discipleship in Jesus Christ. Well, point six then, and that's where we pick up this morning. Point six, the mindset. What is the attitude that motivates and generates discipleship? What mindset does one possess who is willing to either disciple or be discipled or both? Now, I could have broken this down into two different subcategories and dealt with the mindset of the discipler and the mindset of the disciple. But the more closely I examined the scripture on this point, the more I am convinced that the mindset of the faithful discipler and the mindset of the faithful disciple is the same. Now, I did not say that the maturity is the same. That, that wouldn't be productive. But the mindset is the same. And so we're going to talk about four mindsets this morning under this point. Letter A, trusting God. Trusting God. The mindset of the faithful discipler, the effective discipler, and the mindset of the faithful, effective disciple is one of trusting God. Whether investing in someone or pursuing someone to invest in you, you must trust God. If pouring into someone... You must trust him, God, to give you the time, wisdom, energy, prayerfulness, discipline, boldness, love, patience, gentleness, humility, care, and endurance necessary to be effective in someone else's life. You, if you're going to disciple someone, must trust God for the patience necessary to pour into someone who needs to grow spiritually. He will disappoint you. 
There will be times where you wonder why he hasn't followed your clear and biblical instruction. You need to trust God that it's his timing and his doing to produce maturity in that person. You'll need to trust him to enable you to provide teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness to the one who needs them and will sometimes be unfaithful to them. You must trust God for this. If you are to faithfully and effectively receive someone else's efforts, hoping to become mature or more mature, you will need to trust God. Trusting God will be necessary for you to humbly receive teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. If you are to disciple someone, you will need to trust God for you to overcome your failures because the person you're discipling will see your weaknesses. The more time you spend together, the more quickly he will see your failures. And you will need to trust God that he will do a work in that person's heart that allows him to continue trusting God while, in a sense, trusting you to be an effective discipler. Perhaps the greatest gateway into being a man or woman who trusts God is to follow the example of our Savior in 1 Peter 2, 21, where Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. While this is the proper gateway, you must nurture that trust by consistently exposing yourself to God's trustworthiness. How do you follow the example of Jesus Christ, who while being reviled did not return revile, who did not return insult for insult? How do you nurture, cultivate that trust in God? Well, I think an equally important question is what does trust in God look like? It looks like Bible reading. The person who trusts God reads his Bible. It looks like Bible trusting. He believes his Bible. He does not pit the Bible against the Bible. He does not see man's responsibilities and do everything he can to do away with God's sovereignty. He engages in Bible trusting, not just Bible reading, but Bible trusting. Three, that one was Bible reading, two was Bible trusting. Three, Bible study. Bible study. We've gone to great lengths at the Anchor Bible Church to teach you hermeneutics. We spent an entire section in WOW teaching women how to study the Bible, nurturing a vibrant interaction amongst our women where we cultivated a deep dependence upon God's word. That was one section. We're currently doing that with the men. This is our second time to go through a hermeneutic study with the men. But we also do that every single week. Do you, do you know that? In your family groups. You have a basic 
hermeneutic outline on your study guide every time you receive it. It speaks first about observation. So we ask questions that can only be answered directly from the text. And then we ask interpretation questions that require you to actually engage in some study using some valid and trustworthy tools. And then third, we have an implication section. So we're nurturing an increasing understanding of how to study the Bible. So a person who trusts God is engaged in Bible reading, Bible trusting, and Bible study. He's also engaged in Bible memorization. He memorizes God's word so that when he's in the throes of life, the difficult circumstances of the details of his life, he can quickly recall the truth. You know, when you're trying to minister to someone who kind of dips his toe in the water of the church on occasion, and you're saying, you know, you need to be here. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, because you memorized that a few weeks ago, many of you. Bible memorization. Fifth, trusting God looks like Bible singing. No small amount of work has been put into the selection of the songs that we sing at the Anchor Bible Church. We've worked hard to be faithful to Paul's words in Colossians and Ephesians to give you an environment wherein you can teach one another. That's what Paul says in those passages. We're to teach one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing to God, but we're teaching each other that theology. So the the theological input in each other's lives comes in the worship service. Sing at least three songs every Sunday to that end. Six, trusting God looks like Bible counseling. And you can even create some subcategories here or write them down. Teaching, correcting, encouraging, training. Trusting God looks like Bible Counseling, whether or not you are aware of it, if you're in Christ, you are a Bible counselor. You're called upon to bring the word of God to bear upon the heart of others who endeavor and desire to trust Christ. They want to think rightly. And you know something from Scripture that you can share with them. Hopefully you will do that. Seven, trusting God looks like Bible praying. Praying in line with Scripture. It's not unusual. We get a request for prayer from someone who's going to undergo some testing to find out what's going on in their body. And often you will hear someone pray, please let the results show that everything's fine. That's a bad prayer. Because it's not reality. You want the results to show the results. You want the testing to, to show what's going on. Nothing wrong with praying that God changes what's going on. In fact, you should. Praying for healing. But if someone says, hey, I'm having a test done, an MRI, an angiogram, would you please pray that it turns out everything's great? No, because I want the doctors to know what's wrong with you so that they can help you. You know, have you ever been the person whose life is bent on pleasure, hedonism? doing everything you possibly can to escape trials, everything you possibly can to escape pain. You should pray for God to do a spiritual work through the difficulties. 
8, Bible-based giving. person who trusts God engages in Bible-based giving. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul explains there that you determine what you will give. You determine what you will give, but there are clear criteria. You are to give with joy, not a legalistic 10%. Can you give 10%? Is it sinful to give 10%? No, I think that's probably a great starting place for some folks. But another great starting place for others is less than 10%. For some, it's a whole lot more than 10%. But to engage in, in fact, in telling people or mandating from others, you must give 10% is the height of practical legalism. Now, if you give 10%, don't feel guilty. Maybe you've decided that's what you want to give, and that's fine. But don't tell somebody else they have to give 10%. That was never mandated, even in the Old Testament. Giving to God's people was mandated for national Israel. And really, if you're going to mandate any percent from people, it needs to be 23 and a third. Because that's what national Israel is required to give. So if you're willing to start giving 23 and a third percent, then, you know, no problem maybe influencing others to give 23 and a third percent. But you can't mandate that. God mandates is that you determine with joy in your heart and you give exceedingly beyond what you think you can. Now, don't do that with mysticism or with any measure of presumption. Work out a budget. Figure it out. Give faithfully. Give biblically within the reasonable means that God has granted you, but stepping it up to go beyond what you think you can. Nine, Bible-based serving is an expression of trusting God. Bible-based serving. Where does that begin? It begins with the body of Christ. It begins with your local church. As I said earlier, don't assume that everybody who says he's a Christian is. There's a sense in which it's really, really difficult to know whether or not someone's a believer unless you're involved in the same local body. It's not impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible. And maybe you have substantial interaction with someone, and because you have observed this person's life, you can really begin to legitimately determine whether or not he's a believer based on biblical truth. But the best environment and the only environment prescribed by God is the local church. So engaging in Bible-based serving starts with serving the church. Read 1 Corinthians 12 for a clear treatise on that. Romans 12, Ephesians 4. Now, with each of these, there must be a passion and deliberate effort to mine the depths of God's word to know him. The person who trusts God is a person who knows God. If you do not trust God, you are not ready to disciple someone to trust God, but you are certainly in need of someone to disciple you. And if you will become someone who trusts God, it will be the result of being discipled by someone who does. But if you desire to trust God in these areas, if you wish to be discipled by someone who trusts God in these areas, then you are at least trusting God enough to know that you need help, you need growth, you need discipleship. Jerry Bridges, in his tremendous book, Trusting God, I commend it to you. If you know someone who's struggling with whatever level of discouragement, this is a tremendous book. He says, God is in control. 
He is sovereign. He does whatever pleases him and determines whether we can do what we have planned. This is the essence of God's sovereignty, his absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all his creatures. No creature, person, or empire can either thwart his will or act outside the bounds of his will. The common response of the person who does not trust God, does not acknowledge, even dismisses God's sovereignty, is that he frequently goes into spiritual meltdown. His inability to handle even the normal difficulties of life, such that he lashes out against those nearest to him, probably his family, are indicative of a distrust in God and a disbelief in his sovereignty. Now think of it. Did Jesus believe in the Father's sovereignty? Well, of course he did. But as a man, he needed to nurture that in his own heart. Back to 1 Peter 2, where we are told that he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. The one who judges righteously is, in fact, sovereign. To entrust ourselves to him means that when your kids do things that don't reflect what you think you've raised them to do, you don't do everything you can to legalistically twist them and force them back into proper conduct. You pray. You read the word. You go to godly people. You go to that person who's discipling you and and you say, help me, I'm angry with my children. Help me to remember the doctrine of God's sovereignty in which I have intended to trust but so frequently fail to remember. Well, B. B. The mindset of the true disciple, the true discipler, is one of exalting Christ. God created you to exalt Christ. He commands you to trust him, and he is trustworthy. The more you know about God, the more you trust him, but the more that you know about Christ, the more you want to worship him. Don't you get excited when I finish preaching and we can start singing? Don't you? I sit in my office on Sunday mornings and I hear the music team singing songs that I love. And it's one of the most difficult things for me to not come in here and just sing. In Philippians 2, verse 9, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every soul ever created will one day reluctantly, defiantly, rebelliously, by default, bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. But you and I are no disciples if we are not voluntarily declaring that he is worthy of exaltation. 
And you cannot give what you do not have. If it is not your inclination to worship the Savior, you cannot influence someone to worship the Savior. Especially in the privacy but somewhat public element of your own home. Those that you would most hope to trust Christ know you best. They know whether or not you worship Christ. They know when they see your interaction with your spouse and your interaction with them and your interaction with your neighbors, whether or not you exalt Christ. Exalting Christ is not boiled down to a weekly opportunity for you and me to sing three songs together. It's nurtured in that. Praise God for that. Thank the Lord for our music team who does a tremendous job of leading us in that. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't boil down to that. That's the shot in the arm once a week that we enjoy and we learn from and we grow. So in those moments where you're having a struggle with your neighbor or your child or whoever, you can go back to those moments where we've taught one another from the scripture in our singing. The person who exalts Christ is the person who trusts God and he is the person who is a disciple. I'll give you some quick reasons to worship Jesus Christ. Number one, he is God, your creator and sustainer from Colossians 1. He is God. Number two, he is the head of the church from Colossians 1. Again, he's the head. You're not. I'm not. Someone mentioned, I don't know, a week or two ago, well, you know, we work through these things, and if you know, we can't come to a resolution, we go to the head. Todd, Ugh. Ugh. I don't have words for how uncomfortable that made me. No, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I'm a slave. Yeah, Christ is the head, right? Colossians 1 tells us that. Three, he's the savior of sinners. Who else? Who else is the savior of sinners? Any suggestions? Raise your hand. Who is the savior of sinners? Who saves sinners from their self-inflicted, deserved, eternal Torment. Who does that? Who provides eternal rest for the self-condemned, self-exalting offender of the God-man? The God-man, that's who. He's worthy of worship. For he is the source of our sanctification. Is he not the source of your spiritual growth? Right? I mean, you know this. You know that in your moments of maybe kind of a 12-step approach to sin, that you gained some traction over your conduct for a time, but it, it wasn't motivated by Christ's love and his kindness to you, and, and it fizzled. 
But when you work out your salvation, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and you obey Jesus Christ, he produces change in you. He changes you. He is the source of your sanctification. Five, those who walk with him worship him. This is a reason to worship Jesus Christ because those who walk with him worship him. Matthew 28, previous to the Great Commission. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they did not give him a fist bump. They worshipped him. Oh, and others doubted. See that? Others doubted his sovereignty. Others doubted his kindness. They, they doubted his trustworthiness. They didn't entrust themselves to the Father in the moment. As he did, they, they lashed out. They did everything they could to control other people's behavior. They doubted. But the disciples who had walked with him, the ones who had spent time with him physically, the ones in whom he had poured his life, they were not desensitized to his presence. As you and I can easily become desensitized to his presence, they were not. The moment that he stepped into their line of vision, they worshipped him. Why? Because they walked with him. Well, let her see. The mindset of the disciple and the discipler is not only one of trusting God and exalting Christ, it is one of humbling self. And let me just say here, practically speaking, that the one who humbles himself begins doing so by trusting God and exalting Christ. As you see the character of God, you see the character of his son, there will be a humbling impact on you. You will see the great chasm between his character and yours. In the Old Testament, sacrificial offerings were required of God's people for them to show their trust in God to fulfill his promise to them for atonement of sins. The offerings did not achieve atonement. Quite the opposite, they were obedient expressions of belief in God's provision of his covering of their sins in a future atoning work. These offerings were a sacrifice. They were not an investment that hoped for a greater return. They showed a willingness to do without, to spend and not receive. They were giving up, doing without, because this expressed humble obedience and trust in God's perfect promises in his word. Paul uses this terminology of being poured out as a drink offering in Philippians 2.14, where he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The vehicle into this is a willingness to not grumble and not 
complain. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul spent his life with no expectation of any earthly return. He was communicating to the Philippians that that was his practice. But also in his final letter to his young disciple Timothy, and near the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's saying his death is near. He goes on to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then he wallows in self-pity and just lays there and waits to die. Right? No. No, he engages in sixth gear in his ministry by saying this to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. You remember this next command? This next instruction, get who? Mark. What do you know about Mark? You know that Paul deemed him unworthy for ministry and said, no, I'm not taking him. But Barnabas said, I will. And Barnabas discipled him and Mark gave him the privilege to disciple him. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. I'm not going to coast. I'm not going to retire. In the end of my life, in the last days of my life, bring Mark, the one who is shamed and yet has been restored via discipleship. He closes this letter to Timothy with these beautiful words and says, grace be with you. It's the same passage where Paul tells Timothy to bring him his books and especially the parchments. He asks for a coat. He asks for his books. He asks for the parchments, the scripture. Why? Because he was ramping up for effective ministry in the final days of his life. He wanted to have an effect on others. Peter says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. In essence, he's saying, I'm going to die soon. So what I'm doing now is pouring into you the truth that you need to remember so that when I'm gone, you will remember. 
1 Peter 5, verse 5. Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me just be real direct. Specifically, how are you obeying this command? Specifically, how are you humbling yourself before the elders? The person who is a faithful disciple, the person who is a faithful discipler humbles himself before others who can lead him or her to spiritual maturity. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you see that in the context that the nurturing of humility comes via imitating someone else? The person who rejects that kind of does his own thing, but dabbles with the church, maybe even engages in some things in the church, but he's not a question asker. He's an information giver. You see how that person is not humble? Where Paul had used the drink offering phrase in Philippians 2, he had just explained that this attitude of humility is for Christians to embrace by following the example of our Savior. If the humble person is the person who is an effective discipler or an effective disciple, he must look to the example of Christ. In Philippians 2, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now ask yourself, and be honest, and be bold, and be brave. Ask yourself, are there areas of commands of Christ which I am regularly rejecting? Specifically, the need to practically humble myself by subjecting myself to the discipleship of a discipler. Humility is the belief and conviction that your life is a gift from God that you are to spend on others that's humility d d the faithful disciple the faithful discipler is a person who's who is serving others he serves mark 10:43 we read but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now this is Jesus' response to James and John's request to be seated at the right hand of Jesus. And Jesus quickly defers by saying, that's not my call. That's already been determined, he says. 
then he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Give your life with no expectation of any earthly return. You are on temporary loan for the pleasure and the better good of the elect. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. You can see how in Paul, there's nothing of Paul. Paul wasn't about Paul. Hey, get me out of jail. Paul said, I'm bound, but the word of God is not. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see here how Paul is saying that Jesus, in his faithfulness, will deny those who deny him. He will deny those who are faithless. Why? Because he is faithful. Spend your life wisely and spend it all. Spend it all as if it's your last opportunity to spend it and do so with no expectation of any earthly reward. Give your life that other lives would be worthy of being given to others. Are you too busy reliving and grinding down every sub-detail of every detail of every interaction you've ever had where you think you deserve better treatment? Are you too busy wrestling with a phrase here and there that someone used that you can't seem to get past? Rather, I'm thinking of your life as one opportunity to be spent for Christ's glory on the lives of others. If so, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Maybe you're in a dark or discouraged chapter in your life. What better to be discipled and what better time for others to see you humbling yourselves to be discipled. The one being discipled is not likely of the same level of maturity as the one discipling him, but if he is devoted to humbling himself, trusting God, and worshiping Jesus, he is qualified. So the mindset necessary for discipleship is one of God-trusting, Christ-worshiping, self-humbling, people-serving awe. To stand in awe of the character and the kindness of Christ to be willing to trust God the Father, to be willing to exalt Jesus, to be willing to humble yourself, and to be willing to spend your life serving others. This is not only the effective discipler. This is the effective disciple. 
Father, we close with a reminder to ourselves that our Savior is the model discipler, not simply as deity, but more specifically as a man who subjected himself to all the weaknesses of this life. That he, faithful to you, but as an example to us, entrusted himself to you. Lord, we ask now that as we go to this time of singing, that it would, in fact, be an exercise in, but also a profitable time of trusting you, exalting Christ, humbling ourselves, and serving others. We ask this in Jesus' name.